Katie here from The Naked Scientists. I hope that you're all well and that you enjoyed our show this week, which was a recording of the live event we did as part of the Cambridge Science Festival back on the 11th of March before the rest of the festival was cancelled. Now, here are a few extra bits from our live show that we couldn't fit in to the main show this week, but that we thought you might enjoy nonetheless. So let me remind you of our panel. There's geneticist Giles Yeo, chemist Liliana Fruk, animal behaviour expert Eleanor Drinkwater, and planetary geoscientist David Rothery, and former Naked Scientist Dave Ansell. So I'll hand you over now to our presenters, Adam Murphy and Chris Smith. Who have we got there? What's your name, sir? Hi, my name is Matt. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, learning new colours from science and from butterflies. Can you explain Vanta Black? Vanta Black. Yeah, the blackest material. Ah, oh, the blackest. Ah, oh, yes, yes, sorry. Light. <laughs> so basically, these type of colours don't stem from any organic compounds, uh, but they stem from the nanoscale arrangement of biopolymers, that means polymeric species that these insects have. So this particular insect, they have uh, chitosan. It's a polysaccharide. It's made of, of chains of glucose, and they are wrapping around each other, and they are forming nanoscale patterns, very small patterns that interact with light. So they can really absorb the light. They, you can also have a super white uh, uh, the, the brightest, shiniest white that ever exists, also in beetles. And this is the consequence of these polysaccharide chains really wrapping itself around each other on the nanoscale. So this changes how the beetles or butterflies interact with light. So there is no organic compound involved. It's just genetically pre-programmed nanoscale wrapping. So we are still trying to understand how to wrap this in the lab. Isn't nature amazing? Quick one for you, Giles. Can mm. you very quickly knock this one out for us? The person doesn't say their name, so I apologise. Why do identical twins have different tastes in food? Because while every single behaviour has a genetic input, there'll also be an environmental input, which could be maybe you had food poisoning once when you actually uh, were young, whereas your twin didn't. Maybe you had some association with another kind of food. So while you have genetic influences of I prefer sugar versus fat or, or savoury versus sweet, um, you can also have an experience which then influences your different tastes in food, which has nothing to do with your genes. And Adam, you, you have classically in our office said that you have certainly got certain preferences, taste preferences, which, which we think might be genetic. Yeah, everything tastes bitter to me. Or uh -huh. Lots of things taste bitter to me. So coffee, red wine, beer, can't stand any of them. They taste like poison. What about sugar? Does that taste bitter? No, sugar is good. Sugar, sugar is good. I can have. Okay. Lots of sugar is fine by me. <laughs> can you taste coriander? Coriander tastes like soap. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so one gene. <laughs> that is one gene, does it? Okay, right. <laughs> Let's have, another question. Let's have another question from the audience. Who, who have we got over there? What's your name? Hi, my name's Jake. I've got a question for Liliana. I was wondering if you've had a chance to play with Barry Calibo's new ruby chocolate, the classification they've come yes. up with, and I'm wondering what it is that makes it taste fruity. Ah, okay. Good question. Uh, ruby chocolates, we still don't know really the uh, recipe, how it's made, so you can buy it in bulk. 
but it's believed that there is a combination of mixing and heating, which then releases polyphenols and alkaloids, which are originally present in the cocoa bean. So if you treat it with a particular methods and you also maybe add some ingredients in it, some extra sugars, you can get this aromatic taste, which is a little bit fruity. And it also has this particular ruby color, which stems from this combination of dyes, which are the product of this mixing uh, uh, process. And it's very tasty. <laughs> You'll have to bring some next yes, time. Lily. next time. Uh, David Rothery, quick one for you. What, in your opinion, says this person, unfortunately no name, I apologise if I'm stealing your question, is the probability of finding any life on Mars? And this has obviously Ooh, gone up the agenda a bit because we've got more missions than ever really looking for it, haven't we now? Um, I think it's quite likely that there has been life on Mars at some point. Whether it started independently on Mars or got there from Earth, I don't know. But certainly, if you hit Earth with something big enough, it can throw off some debris from Earth, carrying some bug- bugs which would survive the journey through space. You think they'd survive? And some, some will. A few, you only need a few because you've got large amounts of time for this to happen, many occasions. You could get a bug, a microbe, single-celled organism, travelling within a rock from Earth to Mars. If it landed in the right place on Mars and it was a bug that survived by chemical processes of basically munching the rocks, it could scratch a living on Mars. So there could have been life from Earth on Mars or that started out on Mm. Mars. So I think there have probably been microbes on Mars and may still be in certain select places. So I think it's quite likely. It's not the most likely place to find life. That's inside one of the icy moons of Jupiter or Saturn. But on Mars, microbes, yes, which is why we're careful where we land and careful that the spacecraft have as small a bio-burden as possible because we don't want to contaminate the place before we've done the experiment. Yes, I'm very passionate about this. Because we explore enzymes, we are also very interested in extremophiles. So these are microbes, one-cell organisms that have enzymes that survive extreme conditions. So you have, for example, microbes that can survive to minus 60 degrees, which is incredible. Or you can have uh, organisms that survive very acidic conditions as well. And if we really believe that if we find life, it's going probably be one of these extremophiles that we can, you know, we are still finding on Earth as well. Who's next in the audience? Hiya, my name's Aki. I was just wondering, and this might just be a thing that you'll find in kind of space sci-fi kind of things, but I was wondering, is there anything like a a wormhole or anything in actual um, astronomy? Adam and Dave, you're the physicists, so you have to answer this question. So what do the pair of you think? My understanding, and I could be wrong, it's been a long time since my physics degree, is there's nothing in the maths of how space works that says there can't be wormholes. They are something that drop out. If you apply all of Einstein's maths, it's something that drops out. And for those not in the know, what is a wormhole and why does it matter? A wormhole is a very sci-fi thing that I know from eight years old and watching Star Trek, is a point that connects two really distant parts of space. So you could go into this here and end up on the other side of the galaxy, apparently, if you're piloting the Enterprise well enough. And again, there's nothing in the maths that says no, but we've never seen hide nor hair of one. 
They've got yes. some tunnels under Adam Brooks Hospital, a bit like that. You go down into the basement and then you re-emerge about a year later and you're on totally the other side of the site and you've no idea how you got there. Are they similar? Uh, quite possibly. I think some of the solutions to the maths require something of negative mass to stop the wormhole collapsing. And we haven't found anything with negative mass, and that might be a game killer, as it were, to the whole, to the wonderful idea of wormholes letting us get around the universe quicker. So don't hold your breath, but maybe in the future. Who's next? This might be for you, Chris. Coronavirus. All the general public that are buying all these antibacterial hand washes, are they going to be any safer than I am, as I don't have any? Okay, who's washing their hands with antibacterial or antimicrobial hand sanitizer gel? Hands up. This is a filthy audience. Look at that, no one. (laughs) Hands up who's washing their hands with just soap and water. Hands up who washed their hands since they got to this building. Okay, just to summarise, no one is basically using hand rub, probably because you can't buy any. Was that right? Shop sold out? (laughs) Most of the audience are saying that they've washed their hands with soap and water today, which is a relief, and some are saying that they've washed their hands since they got into the, into the building this evening. The evidence is, okay, that you can't beat soap and water. People have done head-to-head trials, and we do this in the hospital because it really matters. Having clean hands in the hospitals, before people realised this, and actually the, the evidence goes back more than 100 years that washing your hands saves lives. And it was a guy called Semmelweis who made the observation that if a lady gave birth in the hospital in the morning, her chances of mortality, uh, dying, of sepsis, were a fraction of people who gave birth in the afternoon. And when he examined what was going on, he realised that the midwives were delivering the babies in the morning while the doctors were off doing post-mortems and all the people who died the previous day of sepsis. The doctors would appear on the wards in the afternoon, having finished their post-mortems, covered in bugs. Then, when they delivered babies in the afternoon, those women were much more likely to catch stuff. That was the first evidence that if you then intervene, because Semmelweis did, he got people washing their hands with pretty horrible stuff, actually, but very caustic solution, probably did wonders for making their skin fall off, but the mortality rate plummeted. So washing your hands, he proved, saves lives. So extrapolating to the present day, or bringing this forward to the present day, people are doing similar sorts of tests to say, well, what makes a difference, soap and water, or do we need to spend a lot of money on these hand gels? Because the alcohol hand gels, they do work under certain circumstances, but they're expensive. And actually, you can't beat soap and water. Mm. And it works very well because the soap basically liberates the grease and dirt particles from the skin, and the running water washes them away, taking any microbes clinging to your skin with them. So that's part of it. Very cheap, very effective, very safe. The other part of it is that the alcohol ham rub doesn't kill all microorganisms. There are some, particularly viruses, which are really resilient, robust particles, and our old friend norovirus Mm -hmm. is up there among them, and rhinovirus that causes common colds and other enteroviruses that cause the common cold. They don't have an outer coat that's made of an oily membrane. So they're invulnerable to alcohol hand rub. So you come along, rub this stuff all over your hands, and then you're left with a nice pure culture of norovirus on your hands. <laughs> and so if you're going to catch anything, that's the one you're going to get. Mm. So best thing to do, just you're, you're not at any higher risk if you're using soap and water. Who's next? Oh, my name is Juan. That steel metal container where you store the liquid nitrogen, why isn't it popping like the, met- uh, the plastic bottle did? The short answer is because there's a hole in the top. 
And so the, the, any nitrogen which escapes can get out. The slightly longer answer is it's also very, very, very well insulated. If, actually, if you look at the nitrogen city in there, it's hardly bubbling at all because so little heat is getting in from the sides. Um, so it's not heating up very much, so it's not boiling very much. But the really important thing is there's a hole in the top so the gas can escape. Thank you, Dave. David Rothery, quick one for you that someone sent in. Unfortunately, didn't add their name. Can you tell us more about this new second moon that we have orbiting the Earth? Is there such a thing? Yes, there is. About six metres across, so it would fit across the width of this room. It's not that big. It's a small lump of rock. It's, t- it's very faint. We can't get a spectrum from it, so we don't know its composition. Where, where is it? Obviously up it's in the sky. About, but... It's making a few loops around the Earth, mostly further away from the Earth than our, our main moon is, just a few times the Earth-Moon distance away. It was discovered in February... Tracking back, it looked like it was captured about three years ago. After one more, after it's completed its current trip around the Earth, it's probably going to wander off again. So it's one of these asteroids that's a near-Earth or an Earth-crossing asteroid, just about reaches the Earth's orbit from a bit further out, and it's come close enough to be captured. So it's it's going around the Earth, but it's not firmly captured. It will wander away. But strictly, if it's orbiting the Earth, it's a moon of the Earth. So will for the past three us? years, without us knowing. We've had two moons, but one really, really tiny one. Will it fall into the Earth or will it no, wander off No, it's going to escape space? again. It'll be orbiting the Sun in such a way that it comes close to the Earth every so often. And if it approaches the Earth in just the right way, it will do a couple of loops past the Earth again. But usually it won't do that. Usually it will just pass the Earth and be slightly deflected without orbiting us. Better hope it doesn't mm. meet Becky <laughs> Colombo, eh? <laughs> oh, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? <laughs> Eleanor? What? what, what? Now, this might be a very dumb question, but I'm very curious. What makes it a moon and rather than a big rock in the sky? Well, nobody's <laughs> actually ever defined what a moon is. The International Astronomical Union defined planet in 2004, and that caused an enormous stink mm. because it decided Pluto wasn't a planet anymore. Guy. Basically, a moon is anything which is orbiting something else that's not, not the star. Okay. Moons can have moons potentially, but then un- in unstable orbits. Tiny asteroids. There are, there are asteroids um, a kilometre across that have moons 10 metres across going round them. Wow. You, you can have really, really tiny moons. Are there ring particles? Saturn's rings yep. are made of tiny particles. You wouldn't want to call each one of those an individual moon because some are only a micron across and you can't, can't track them. But there's no definition of what is a moon and what isn't. And it's a can of worms, which, is, <laughs> which you would like. <laughs> but this is a can of worms that's best avoided. There's, There's another thing. definition for moon, which is what schoolboys tend to do out of the window of the school bus from time to time. Oh. <laughs> We've got a few minutes left. Are there any more questions before we wrap things up? Who's got the mic at the moment? Towards the back there. Hello. Hi, my name is uh, Jacob, um, and I've got a, a question about obesity. And actually, it's a por- two-part question. So first one is, what's the most effective one single thing that everyone could do to try and um, battle it as our own battle? And then the second question is, what's the most effective thing, population scale, that we could do? Ah, okay. So the first thing is, as an individual, what you could do best. And the second is, as a society, what we could do best. Okay, good question. So at the end of the day, the answer is, we have to... And presumably, you're talking about obesity and trying to lose the weight from it, Okay. Um, we have to eat less, okay? And I know it seems obvious because it's obvious because of the physics. The tricky thing is the way each of us can try and eat less is completely different. And so as an individual, the way to do it would be to find a strategy for you to eat less 
Um, and that will mean most effectively controlling the environment you can control, which is within, within, your, within your house. Having foods that, that you know you are attracted to, don't have it in your house. That's the first step. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, that's just, it's obvious, but it's not obvious because it's very difficult. But secondly, if you can find foods that make you feel fuller when you eat them, so foods that are higher in protein tend to do this, foods that are higher in fiber, then you try and make yourself feel a little bit fuller so that you eat less. From a societal level, this is a very complicated question. So I think because our genes haven't changed, the environment has changed. So from a societal question, from policymakers, from the, we need to be able to work with the environment. We have the built environment, the food environment, the fact that when I go to BP and put a diesel that I'm faced with a wall of chocolate, that, that kind of thing. I think that needs to be sorted from a public health scenario, from, from, a, from a governmental uh, uh, scenario. I, and I do think we need both to solve the problem, because if you fix the, the problem within your own house, you solve only very part of the problem, because we spend most of our time outside of house. That's the answer. Last one, or last two. So, one there, one there. My name's Gabriella, and I, I don't know if this is, like, relevant or if you'll be able to answer it, but I saw this video that was, like, some people took a tablet and coated it over their tongue, and it completely changed their taste buds. And so when they tried anything sour, it tasted sweet. And if they tried anything sweet, it tasted really sweet. Was like, how would yeah. that work? That's called uh, Miracle Berry. Yeah. And uh, the way it works is that the molecule looks like another molecule in a certain food flavour. And it engages with the receptors on your tongue that detect the presence of a certain flavour without actually stimulating them. So the effect is that it blocks or occupies your ability to pick up some flavours but not others. So then what happens is that when you eat other flavours, the flavours that are normally detected aren't being detected, but some of the other ones are being extra detected. And this distorts temporarily your ability to sense flavours, so it changes what the world tastes like temporarily. It's a bit like... And who, who here has been skiing? Have you ever done the thing where you, you wear tinted ski goggles and then you take them off and the world looks a bit different for a while, doesn't it? Funny colours. And the reason that happens is that when you're wearing the tinted goggles, because of the way your retina is converting light waves into brain waves, there are different receptors in the back of the eye that detect different colours. And if you wear tinted goggles, then the light that's hitting the back of your eye is preferentially of a certain set of colours and it's going to use and therefore tire out a bit more the receptors for some colours, but not others. And then when you take the goggles off, those receptors that weren't being activated before because the goggles were changing what light could go to your eye, suddenly those ones are relatively a bit more active for a little while than the other receptors in your eye, making you see the world in funny colours. And, and a friend of mine did this and, and thought oh my goodness, I hope this is not permanent because <laughs> everything looked a really bizarre colour. But it's a similar sort of phenomenon. It's the taste equivalent of that visual phenomenon when you wear dark glasses or tinted glasses for a period of time. Just this one here. Does sugar stimulate appetite? So if you avoid eating sugar, would you therefore eat less? That's a very interesting question. I think sugar and salt... And fat, leaving aside the fact that you need uh, uh, sugar, salt, and fat to some degree. Um, you don't really they need make... sugar, do you? You do need sugar. You do mm. need sugar. Sugars are basically... Okay, sucrose. We eat, we sucrose. Eat. But sucrose, when you cut it into two, you get glucose and fructose. So we, we need glucose. 
the, the key sources of our glucose, you can get glucose from a number of different places, but because the sugar we see in the world tends to be sucrose, it just tends to be, which is 50% glucose and 50% fructose, we need the sugar. Now, do we have too much sugar? We have too much sugar. And what happens is sugar does make things taste better, the same as salt, the same as fat, okay? And then almost like all the things that are bad for you. They do make, make food taste better. So um, in that sense, it makes food more palatable. Now, is there any way of weaning yourself of sugar? There probably is, and with salt, because you know that, for example, if you've been eating something for a long time, suddenly if you taste something extra sweet or extra salty, it tastes almost unpalatable. So I guess the answer to your question is because sugar, salt, and fat um, actually makes things taste better, they're more palatable, it can actually drive your appetite. Is it the cause of the obesity problem? Eating too much of everything is the cause of the obesity problem. Is it sugar in particular? I mean, I think there is a lot of sugary foods around, and sugar is very, very easily available, which means that it doesn't take a lot of energy to get the calories out of of sugar. But we do need sugar, we just eat too much sugar. Giles Yeo answering that last question there. Thanks, Giles. And thanks to Liliana Frook, Eleanor Drinkwater, David Rothery and Dave Ansell. We'll be back next week with more Naked Science. Until then, thanks so much for listening. And goodbye.